0: But we have this weird you know we have this weird juxtaposition of cognitive characteristics that render us uniquely aware of the potential for meaninglessness and the potential for death to mean that's it you know we're, we're insignificant organisms um but at the same time that allows us to um, to build culture right to invest in symbols um to to think about broader, longer-term endeavors. Um, so one of the things that we like about, or that we benefit from cultural institutions, is the sense that, yeah, I'm just a little speck of dust, maybe, um, but I'm part of something that's bigger and transcendent. That um, my family line, my cultural traditions, um, my religion, my um, uh, my nation, um, even works you know, works that I contributed to society will outlast me. so we seem to be unique in that way, that we invest in this symbolic space. My guest
1: today is Dr. Clay Rutledge. Clay is an author, psychological scientist, consultant, public speaker, and professor. And he studies basic psychological needs and how these needs influence well-being, physical health, intergroup relations. Much of his research focuses on the need for meaning in life and the need to belong. He's published over 100 scholarly papers, co-edited two books on existential psychology, authored several books himself, including Nostalgia, a Psychological Resource, and Supernatural, Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World. He was lead writer for the TED-Ed animated lesson, Why Do We Feel Nostalgia? His research has been funded by many well-known, prominent science foundations, including the National Science Foundation, National Institutes of Health, the Templeton Foundation, and many others. His work has been featured by many popular media outlets, such as the New York Times, the Washington Post. His work has been featured on BBC, CBC, CNN, Men's Health, MSNBC, so many others. Uh, That's why it's such a a great, tremendous privilege to have him on today's episode. So without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Clay Rutledge. Well, Clay, thanks so much for joining me. Um, As I shared with you in some of our initial conversations, the, the sort of religious tradition that I had grown up in, which was, I think, fairly similar to most people. Who were evangelical Christians at the time, and it didn't carry this high view of uh, the sciences. And in fact, I'd say we actually carried this, this deep suspicion of the sciences, especially things like biology, geology, and especially like behavioral sciences like psychology, anything that didn't line up with our sort of interpretive lens that we were reading the scriptures in. But uh, now in my adult years, with this, I like to think a more robust theological framework helps me make sense of science. and and actually see how deeply the sciences are intertwined with people's sorts of theological and philosophical presuppositions, Uh, I've become so fascinated by biology, behavioral sciences. So one day I'm, you know, kind of find myself on one of these internet rabbit holes, and I stumble across your work— and I get going on, again, a, this deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole, read some articles, uh, you know, some things you, you've published through Quillette, and then also, you know, some of the more academic uh, papers that you've co-authored. And you've, you've co-authored some, what, over 100 yeah, um, yeah. published papers yeah. in the be- behavioral sciences and, um, and, and psychological science. So I almost think now if I had this career do-over, I might go into your line of work. It it seems really, really fascinating. So can you explain a bit about what you do and and even sort of perhaps maybe the formative experiences that led you into this? It's really a unique scientific discipline.
0: Yeah, for sure. No, what, what I do is unique um, in a lot of ways, but probably most centrally is I do what's often referred to as existential experimental psychology which is, sounds like a lot, but it's weird in, in, in a simple way because we normally think of existentialism or existential philosophy as being, you know, really outside of the domain of scientific inquiry. Um, but then this tradition kind of rose out of the, you know, the kind of social psychological tradition, but also in the areas that are often referred to as like positive psychology um, of Being interested in these big existential questions about freedom and meaning and, you know, um, the tension between security and freedom and these sorts of authenticity um, and these types of ideas um, of of trying to approach those more philosophical questions using empirical tools of the modern behavioral scientist. And so there has been this tradition that's, you know, really only, I would say, probably in its proper form, a few decades old. Um, but can you can you use the techniques that we use in the behavioral sciences, the, para- the experimental paradigms, the, um, the quantitative paradigms we use to get at how humans approach these questions? And so it is kind of an interesting, um, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of a Wild West sort of messy area because it's difficult to define these these constructs, right? And it's difficult to approach these constructs. So it's not a... A perfect enterprise, of course, no behavioral and social sciences is a perfect enterprise because we're often dealing with these relatively abstract ideas like the self, right? Um, but that's kind of that's kind of the goal. So I, you know, I can get into my personal background, but my my educational background is I, you know, I went to a, a relatively small commuter college in my hometown and majored in psychology, and I just thought, well, you know, I'm going to do something directly related to mental health um you know when i get out of school and i did actually work in community mental health uh, for a little while after school but i had some professors that were like hey clay you should think about you know you should think about um, graduate school because you seem to really be into research and thinking about these questions and have a curious mind and you know you seem to be quantitatively oriented um, maybe you'd like that. I didn't even really know what that that meant, to be honest, you know, with, with my background. What does that mean to go to graduate school? Um, but they kind of convinced me to give it a shot. And then so I went and pursued my PhD and really got it, you know, was working in a science lab and really got into into doing, you know, laboratory um, research, research with humans, you know, what we call human subjects, you know, bringing people into the laboratory and, and conducting, you know, experimental um test to examine you know how they you know how they grapple with questions um in our case existential questions about death and meaning so i just happened to kind of stumble into this existential science lab as a graduate student with no idea what i was what you know it wasn't like i looked at this program and i was like oh i should do that yeah. it just kind of happened um and then i was like yeah this is definitely that what i'm into so why was i into that stuff why was i into these big questions um. Well, the most obvious answer um, is related more to, I think, my personal background, which I'm the son of Southern Baptist missionaries. I was born in Ivory Coast, West Africa. That's where I spent the first six years of my life. Then we got, um, you know, uh, I got sick. A couple of my siblings got really sick with malaria, and we had to move back to the U.S. Wow. Lived in Southwest Missouri. My dad was a pastor um, at different churches, but really for a long time at a real rural church in in Southwest Missouri. And then later in life, he actually became a hospital chaplain. Um, But so I lived my, you know, I I lived pretty much my whole life up until college in a very traditional um, conservative Christian Southern Baptist, you know, family and broader, you know, cultural setting. And then I went to college and, you know, started thinking about these things and, and, terms of science and research, these questions, um, and that's what I've been doing for the last, really for the second half of my, you know, I'm, I'm 42, so the first 20 years were kind of spent in that, you know, conservative Christian world, and then and then now I'm in the more, like, um, secular, academic, scientific, not that those worlds are, you know, you mutually know, too, exclusive, yeah, right? yeah mutually yeah. exclusive or, or magically distinct in some way, um, but they're clearly different cultural you know, different different cultures or subcultures. Um, so yeah, that's kind of kind of my background.
1: So you you had spent as the son of a missionary, and then of course being a, a PK, a pastor's kid. Yeah. you're you're constantly being bombarded throughout your youth with questions about meaning, purpose, mm-hmm. death. You know the the yeah. questions about ultimate reality. Yeah. Um, I find it interesting that you actually you went into the sciences having that background because I know again speaking from my own experience and it wasn't Southern Baptist but there's there's a lot of overlap in even these different niche evangelical sorts of pockets where it seemed like a common thread. I don't know how how old you are but I'm thirty five. And uh, it seemed like very common in the '80s and '90s for this there to be this sort of anti-science attitude. Did you experience yeah. that at all? When or did you have a a yeah. family or, or sort of theological construct that that had a higher regard for for the sciences?
0: So I didn't really experience it that much in my own you know, family life that I, I definitely know what you're talking about in the broader culture. And yeah, we came, so I'm 42. So we came up, you know, around the same time in yeah. the eighties and nineties, um, in our formative years. Um, but you know, my parents were always very, um, pro education and very, and I, I say education cause I don't think it was so much an emphasis on science. They were just like, you need to listen to your teachers and be a good s- student. Right? They know what they're right. talking about. So I don't really remember them ever partitioning out, well, in the case of science or certain sciences, you know, we're distrustful of, of secular authority in this way. Um, I just remember it being like, no, just do really well at school and be a good student. And and um, my mom's a nurse. And so practically speaking, she was very um, science oriented. In fact, she's been a medical You know, after we returned from Africa and after the kid, you know, her kids were raised, uh, um, my siblings and I, um, she ended up going back into, because she's a registered nurse, going back into some medical missionary work Mm -hmm. and went on a number of missionary trips to places like Haiti and Belarus and um, Cambodia and Thailand, um, bringing pharmaceuticals. A medical treatment, and even, you know, she's done, because she's a birthing, or now she's retired, but she was a birthing center nurse, and, um, bringing, you know, just basic hygiene and medical education to pregnant women, and, and things like that. So, of course, that's a more applied or practical, you know, she's not thinking about basic scientific questions, right. um, but I don't remember there ever really being any kind of anti-science sentiment at uh, home. Now that being said, of course, I went to Southern Baptist Church, so there wasn't it wasn't like people were jumping up and down talking about evolution or yes. or, or, or anything like that so um and it could be just I was spaced out to be honest, I don't know like but <laughs> <laughs> maybe this sentiment was there, and I was just inattentive, but I don't ever remember that. You know, I, I do remember the broader culture of these concerns, but I don't remember that ever being an issue at home. It seemed like really what my my family and my, you know, my family is definitely very conservative and very traditional. But it seemed like really the focus that my, you know, that my parents had was on the teachings of Christ towards our, you know, our responsibilities towards um, towards the poor and the vulnerable. And, of course, as moral, you know, as a moral guidelines for our own, how we conduct in our own lives. But a lot of it was very, very practical. You know, I remember my dad, my dad used to have this same, he's not alive anymore, but my dad used to have this saying, like, um, when he'd see people that have all these problems, whether it was drug addiction or divorce or, you know, um, a bunch of other, you know, problems with with the criminal justice system, he used to have this saying where he'd say, why do people have to make their lives so difficult? (laughs) And yeah you know, so it's basically this practical advice, like if you follow these teachings, if you follow this moral guide for how to conduct yourself, you know with a certain you know restraint and and order, um then you know you're you're just much less likely to have a bunch of problems hmm. in life. Um, not that they're not not that people aren't victims of of bad you know a bad circumstance, um, but that there are certain things you can control, like you can choose not to not to drink alcohol for instance so they were definitely from the southern baptist tradition of you know no drink no drinking alcohol um and so there was that kind of um, emphasis more than i think the bigger questions of how that interfaces with 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 basic science if Mm. that makes sense
1: no it does it does make sense yeah much more um Ethical instruction
0: on individual responsibility, yeah, right? I think so. Um, so you, and I don't know, but I didn't. It wasn't like I was provoking them either. It wasn't like I was like really stress testing
1: yeah. them
0: on these issues yeah. and say, "Hey, what do you think about the age of the earth?" Or I mean, I definitely remember growing up and you know being taught literal, you know, like a literal new earth kind of creationist view. Um, mm-hmm. But it never. I guess I never, and maybe again, maybe this speaks to me not uh, being kind of thick, but you know, I never like saw that as I never like that was never pressed against. Well, there's this more scientific view that's in conflict with Mm -hmm. our view, Um, so they almost existed in parallel. um, In parallel, if that makes sense.
1: Maybe you just maybe you're just sleeping through all those sermons, (laughs) right?
0: (laughs) I think that's. Quite possible.
1: <laughs> well, in some way, that probably worked out for your good, because I think I think of my experience he- heading to into undergrad and being uh, equipped for this um, this culture war, um, and and very much a, a culture war mindset. And I think it really limited me. I only took so my undergrad was in history, and I, I had only taken one undergrad science course, which was like the the bare minimum. And if I would have had my druthers, I would have taken zero. But I'm really thankful for this geology course that I had taken because uh, it had expanded and it pushed me and challenged me. I mean, it seemed like the evidence my geology teacher was presenting to me, which was very different than what I heard growing up. He wasn't malevolent. He wasn't antagonistic. Uh, he actually was a, a man of uh, religious faith himself and presented it in a very clear, accessible way. And it was like, wow. You know, I, I, I would be—I uh, I don't know what I would do if I'd have to, you know, sh- close myself off to yeah. the possibility of this, this being the way the world actually is. So your your parents were engaged in, in, in deeply meaningful work to them, um, and by probably most people's accounts, even those who don't hold to the same sort of religious or philosophical presuppositions your family did, they would still from the outside look at your mom and say, boy, you know, medical missions— Caring for the poorest of the poor—that's meaningful work. Uh, There's this term, meaning making, that actually is kind of the subtitle of of my podcast, which is really this is really dedicated to exploring the intersection of theology and and our meaning making endeavors. Which I think in the in the field of theology isn't necessarily a popular term, but it was something I had first heard of actually back when I was working my, on my masters and and reading the work of psychologist Robert Keegan, and I, I found it to be such a helpful term because it seemed to provide this sort of um, overarching framework for these categories in the humanities and the sciences that that seem to be posited as these really unique disciplines. But when in reality, it was really hard to see oftentimes a distinct line between where something like like theology ended and where philosophy began. Or I'd frequently hear a, a scientist make some sort of claim that they were simply doing science with no philosophical or theological presuppositions or implications I had to go wait, wait wait a minute there's some heavy philosophical assumptions happening here so uh, you know in your specific field of expertise where you're you're really studying the psychology of meaning and and understanding how the human brain and humans process meaning and pursue meaning um, can we really neatly divide our quest for meaning and to understand reality into like neat, isolated categories, or are they really part of a much messier interdependent network?
0: Yeah, I think I think definitely the latter. It's a messier interdependent network. And and this is in a way why I think I've really kind of I am a psychologist by training, but in a lot of ways I think of myself more as a just a Behavioral scientist. That's the term I I often use a lot, and not just because I'm frequently irritated with my field, but there's that too. (laughs) Um, But I'm really at some level could even go in the, you know, I could have easily gone, I think, in the direction of sociology or history. I mean, to be honest, I wanted to be a history major at one point, but I had this history professor that was like, don't do it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I wonder why. (laughs) (laughs) Don't do it. (laughs) And I was like, oh, okay. Um, but no, I, you know, I think really why I picked the, why I guess I should, why I'm kind of focused on the piece of the, the broader pie that is psychology is because I'm really more interested in the social and cultural world but I I've decided for whatever reason to focus on the part that's mediated through the human mind or brain right and so I you know that's my level of analysis largely is to think about these broader questions like you say said I think definitely tap into all sorts of disciplines but at some level all of our thoughts and feelings and beliefs are mediated through, you know, our central nervous system, and so I I, I think that's why I, I, I kind of am at focus on that. Even though really I'm not really that interested in the brain. I'm not really that interested in the mind, um, except to the extent that it's um that it's the vehicle through which we we do culture, right? We do social life. Um, so. Yeah, I think that is a really, really, it, it taps into all these things. In fact, a lot of times I, I wish I could clone myself and make 10 copies because um, I can. it's hard enough for me to keep up with the science in my field. And then I talk to people like you and other people that know a lot about theology, and it reveals how ignorant I am. And then I talk to people in anthropology, um, and it reveals how ignorant I am. Mm. I talk to philosophers, and I don't even know what they're talking about. <laughs> Don't even get me started on, like, political science. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So I just, you know, they're, they're, all these things are really, really interrelated. And I do like thinking about them at that high level. But my, um, you know, I'm an academic. I have to publish papers. I have to write grants. So the game I know the most is the, you know, is the psychology side, the psychological science side. Um, but I definitely don't think you know, it is meaning is a solely psychological, um, enterprise. Um, I think you're right about that. If that makes sense.
1: Yeah. What are, what are some of the sorts of psychological drives or biological drives that push people to feel this deep sense of, of trying to, you know, as far as we know, we're the only species on the planet that yeah. that's pursuing meaning. Yeah. Um, can can you explain perhaps some of those those factors, or what are, what are some of the yeah. bit of the the psychological drive behind this this quest to make sense of our experiences and reality, and to find this weird thing we call meaning and purpose in our in our yeah. daily experiences?
0: Yeah. So so one of the big thinkers that influenced you know my certainly my early work and even still was the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker. Um, who wrote the you know um, the 1973 nonfiction Pulitzer Prize-winning book, *The Denial of Death*? And his what he was really trying to do was was build what you know a science of man, so to speak, of kind of combining all these fields from evolutionary biology to sociology to anthropology to psychology, kind of bring all these things together to you know to interrogate the interrogate the basic question of what does it mean to be a self-conscious animal, right? To be, like you said, the one organism that seems to be concerned about questions of, uh, of meaning. Now, you could take a step back, and I have, um, and, and think about meaning at a broader level that might not make it distinct to humans. It is distinct to humans in, in important ways, but if you want to think about, you know, connections between us and other um, primates, or even just other organisms more broadly, you could imagine meaning at some level being about sense making, about making sense of the world. And that can mean even something as, as basic as making sense of the visual world, right? You look around and, you know, um, to navigate the world visually, you have to form meaningful images and contours, and you have to be able to Um, you know, things have to make sense, right? And so even at some basic level of just input into the human eye, um, we're on a, you know, there's some low-level quest to make sense of reality. Um, In fact, there's been some interesting research um, on the idea that modern art or abstract absurdist art, you know, kind of threatens meaning because it violates our assumptions about how the world works, right? You can have things that don't, that just don't make sense to us um and that can it's not like a it's not like a big existential threat by any means but there's something that makes us feel a little bit disoriented us yeah something's not right here um so at that level you could say well even even my dog cares about meaning not consciously but he's trying to yeah he, uh, he's a pattern seeking organism trying to make sense of his reality now of course my dog's meaning system if you want to say he has one isn't that interesting. He's just, you know, he wants to feel companionship and get fed every day and go on his walks and you know, his his assumptions about the world are, are pretty basic. But that, you know, that gets to well what makes us, what makes humans compared to other organisms, even, you know, perhaps other primates, um, really unique. And it seems to be this high you know, we have this, you know, this this newly developed part of the brain, you know, these these frontal regions that are, really allow for complicated self-consciousness, and so we are aware of ourselves, and not just are we aware of ourselves, but we can think in terms of time, right? So we can think about right. the future, we can think about the past, which you know got me into another area of research uh, of the psychology of nostalgia, and we can kind of mentally time travel, um, and you know, Becker made this point that. This puts, up in this puts us in this very unique predicament where we're an organism that, like other organisms, are in the fight for survival. We're made up of biological systems that orient us, you know, towards survival. And yet, at the same time, we're the one organism smart enough to realize that we're finite. Mm. And so we can reflect on our fragility. So the same cognitive capacities that... um allow us to think about these questions also help us navigate them because we're smart enough to know we're mortal um we're also smart enough to um to aspire for transcendence right to 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 you know so if we if if we think about finding food as solving a problem well then finding meaning is also kind of solving a problem and we're, we're smart enough to do that too and so we have this weird you know we have this weird juxtaposition of cognitive characteristics that render us uniquely aware of the potential for meaninglessness and the potential for death to mean that's it. You know, we're we're insignificant organisms. Um, But at the same time, that allows us to to build culture, right? To invest in symbols, um, to to think about broader, longer-term endeavors. Um, So one of the things that we like about or that we benefit from cultural institutions is the sense that, yeah, I'm just a little speck of dust, maybe, um, but I'm part of something that's bigger and transcendent. That's um, my family line, my cultural traditions, um, my religion, my, um, uh, my nation, um, even work, you know, works that I've contributed to society will outlast me. And so we seem to be unique in that way, that we invest in this symbolic space um in this you know cult so um I, you know it used to be psychologists would say well humans are social animals and that's true but that doesn't make us unique there's lots of social animals but right. being being cultural animals seems to be unique what what sort of uh,
1: I know you're not necessarily an evolutionary psychologist but what what sort of um, uh, it's It's curious to me, why wouldn't, why would this sort of deep innate sense to long for transcendence and to experience things even potentially like depression when we don't have a answer to our deep innate sense for meaning? That seems like something that would almost be an evolutionary disadvantage that would possibly threaten one's survival. Um, Why, why would that be, why would that continue
0: on in, um in homo sapiens? Yeah. So there's a few possibilities, I think. Um, One is that it isn't a, um, it isn't, that it's not really an adaptation in itself as much as a side effect of other adaptations. So it's really, really good for us to be smart. It's so good for us to be smart that the, the negative consequences of being smart don't outweigh the benefits. So, being able to ruminate and have social anxiety and depression aren't great, um, but but the benefits of that self consciousness are better. There was a book um, years ago by a social psychologist um, named Mark Leary wrote this book called The Curse of the Self, and that was kind of his argument is the or I, I think I, I think that was part of his argument was basically having the self has been so great in so many ways for us that the burden of it that we carry as a result, um, isn't, you know, doesn't outweigh the benefit. That's one possibility. Another possibility, which I'm leaning a little bit more towards recently is that meaning, um, does have, um, adaptive advantage. The pursuit of meaning does have adaptive advantages. And some of this is based on research we've been doing at multiple levels from, you know, kind of traditional behavioral science to even more neuroscience um, that suggests that when, when people feel, when people pursue or are oriented towards meaning, it's motivating and motivates them in good directions. So what I mean by that is, if you get up in the morning and you say, I have a purpose, like I, I, my life matters, um, you're probably going to make better decisions. Then, if you, in terms of being healthy, um, you're probably more likely to wear your seatbelt, eat a healthy breakfast, um, to think about things that are um, that allow you to function more productive. You know, be a more productive um, member you, of society.
1: You may be more likely to reproduce too, right? You right, might right? try to take better care of yourself to attract exactly. a mate, or
0: yeah. So if you have that orientation, and that bears out empirically, um, you're. You're just more likely to make good decisions and to take fewer risks. And another way to think about it is, you're less likely to surrender to kind of hedonistic, short-term pleasures mm. and make sacrifices for long-term, for longer-term goals. So, meaning seems to have a kind of a, what we call a self-regulatory function, or you might say is like a self-control thing. That if I get up and I'm like, hey, I have a real purpose, then you know, maybe I'm not gonna just you know um, sit around and play video games and get high all day. I gotta go do stuff. People are counting on me, and I'm gonna make a difference in the world. Um, now I'm making a very you know simplistic analysis, right. here. Um, but that's kind of the that that's kind of the thinking that meaning isn't just an outcome that's good for our mental health, but it also mobilizes us. It has mm-hmm. motivational power. So from that perspective, I think you could imagine it having you know, a, a, a kind of a, an evolutionary lens to it, which is um, the humans that feel like they matter, that 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 they um, um, that they have meaning, and that we can talk about where that meaning comes from, you know, different sources. Um, but they're just going to contribute more to a healthy and productive society. Yeah.
1: I think it's interesting what you said about one of the possibilities being that it's, uh, you know, the application of our intelligence would seem necessary for survival in other areas. Um, we don't necessarily get to control where that processing power gets applied if it's not being used towards survival, right? I think about this because I, I was having a conversation. I don't know if you know a guy by the name of Paul Vanderclay, um, he does a lot of. Interviews another pastor. In, interviews a lot of guys, you know, intellectual, dark web s- sorts mm-hmm. of guys. And uh, we were talking; uh, had him on a couple weeks ago, maybe a month ago. And he he had spent a lot of time doing missionary work in the Dominican Republic, mm-hmm. and he found it so interesting when he was there working among some of the poorest of the poor that suicide was unheard of, yeah. absolutely unheard of there. Yet here in the United States right now, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages. 10 to 35 right now and he remarked that like the meaning crisis is a fat man's disease um it does make me wonder about whether or not uh if you're you are it's also interesting too one other thing i noted when i was doing some research on uh, on global suicide statistics is that in a lot of war-torn islamic nations right now in the middle east my my sister-in-law works for an ngo and she just got back from um syria and iraq uh, horrible conditions over there. And yet suicide is a relatively unheard of uh, yeah. experience there. And it's almost like as if um, you know the brain, the the mental processes, the the computing power, it, it's when it's always applied to basic needs of survival, it perhaps doesn't have the room to go looking for these higher questions of meaning. But when those things get satisfied, it perhaps starts applying that computing power elsewhere. I mean, you think that's a fair? I mean, I, I'm not saying this from any sort of scientific background; more of just a um, perhaps an anecdotal connecting of the dots.
0: Yeah, well, there is actually some relevant data on this question, looking at large international samples, you know, across dozens of of different countries, and it is interesting because it the the countries that are poorer, you know, um people lack, they do have lower suicide rates, you're right, but they also have um, higher meaning rates um, than in more affluent um, Western.
1: And happiness too, right?
0: Yeah, happiness and higher meaning. So it isn't just the case that, it doesn't seem to be just the case that they're not um, concerned with meaning because they're busy doing other stuff. They seem to feel like they have high meaning. And Now, it could be, um, in part because of what you're saying, it could be, well, they don't, um, their meaning is kind of in their face, right? Like, they they get up and they're like, yeah, I've got to feed my family. I've got got stuff to do. Um, And so, um, of course, they're more, um, these countries tend to be more religious. um, So meaning is lower in secular, more secular countries. Um, even at the individual level, I mean, one of the most robust findings in psychology of religion is that um, devoutly religious people report higher meaning um, than less religious or non religious people. Um, you can look at it another way, too. It's that this is also an international sample, so not just in the US, but also in, in Europe. Um, conservatives report higher meaning um, than liberals. And again, part of that might be this. A deeper connection to these traditional institutions and and structures that um, make meaning um, really, in a lot of ways, more automatic. And what I mean by that is, you don't have to. If you have a if you have a faith and a family network and a community, and you feel um, integrated into it and valued, and you're doing things, when asked about meaning, you don't have to probe very deeply. It's at the surface. Um, now the fat man's, um, um, diseases or or however you phrased it is good because I think that is part of it is if you, if everything, if all your needs are being met and you're in relative affluence and in a modern society that's kind of disconnected, um, I think there'd you would have to dig deeper to find it, right? You'd have to, and that would activate more of kind of a, 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 a search for meaning, which can be frightening, right? Because you could be like, well, we'll do? am I really needed? Mm-hmm. One of the major predictors of um, the desire to die by suicide is the is the feeling that you're a burden to others. And so it's not even just, am I needing, but needed, but the opposite of that. Am I actually a problem? <laughs> and... This is actually one. You know, not to get off on a tangent, but this is one of my concerns about some of the movements that seem to be afoot in not just um, you know kind of liberal culture, but even in more even in libertarian and 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 some um, some aspects of conservative culture, which is this notion, things like universal basic income or. Um, you know, just surrendering to like a tech automation kind of worldview. And maybe there's nothing we can do about it, but I think we should be really concerned about this idea of people feeling like I don't have, there's nothing for me. Like I don't have a role in society. And in fact, if anything, I might be, um, I might be a burden on society. And similarly with like the movements like, um, anti-natalism and, um, Kind of environmentalist, um, dystopian sort of views, which I, you know, I would consider myself, um, you know, concerned about climate change and, and things like that. But you do see this kind of almost nihilistic view sometimes that the earth like is going to end. Humans at- are a virus on the planet, yeah. and um, and you see these hyper utilitarian arguments that having kids is bad for the environment. So you start to see all these things where people are stripping away. Um, I don't think on purpose, but people are stripping away the different dimensions of social life and economic life um, that are the fabric of meaning. Right? So you shouldn't have kids. That's bad for the environment, and um, it's you know it's you're bringing you're bringing humans into this hellscape of. A, there's like this weird. I don't know if you if you follow this antinatalist kind of um, philosophy that. It seems like some young people are into. But you can't have kids because that's bad. So you're actually doing something moral or something virtuous by not having kids. It used to be people would just say, hey, I don't want to have kids. It's not for me.
1: Right, (laughs) right. right.
0: But now it's turned into this weird, no, actually, it's bad to have kids. Well, we know um, that family is a big, not only a practical source of support and connection, but it's a major source of meaning. Um, And then, like I said, the economics thing, this view that, Um, You know, some people have used this term, the useless class, that, you know, that you're, um, if you're not part of an intellectual elite or a cognitive elite, then you have no place in the new economy and that we need to give you maybe like a universal basic income or or something. And again, I'm not an economist or.
1: No, but you're exploring this from more of a science of meaning and what happens to people if they have their without sort of challenge without responsibility if they were and and anything that I've heard about UBI doesn't seem like it's going to really provide for people's basic needs I don't know if that's possible from an economic standpoint but let's say it were I I hear what you're saying is more of a concern about if 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 people are able to even just receive without responsibility without working in the morning Without going out into the world and contributing for the benefit of others, which also brings about a mutual benefit that it does something psychologically to one yeah. sort of navigation system for meaning in the
0: world it's a pretty clear signal that you don't really matter um <laughs> right like it's in fact yeah. you're you're dependent now you're dependent on the system um, and again i'm not um I'm not an expert, and I'm definitely I, 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 UBI to me is really, really fascinating. I try to read as much as I can about yeah. it. I don't um, because I don't, you know, I'm not professing. There's very, very smart people that I respect that are big advocates for it, um, but they don't. I don't think they're thinking about it from the, the psychological um, point of view, and it's just one example to me of this bigger problem of um, removing agency. You know, responsibility. Um, you know, sort of dignity from from the person that allows the the things that allow them to feel like I matter. And and the research on meaning in life that that seems to be the biggest predictor of meaning is feeling like you matter. Hmm. So, and and this is something I try to I, I try to make a point to people because a lot of times I think in our culture where we're super focused on being nice and kind and politically correct and um, and not bullying and all that stuff's that all that stuff's fine. Um, I mean, we should be nice and kind to others, um, but we shouldn't confuse um, social pleasantry for valuing people. Mm. Um, right? You can be in a climate where everyone's really nice to you. You could be. I mean, we let's just bring it down to like a kid level analysis. You could be. You could be in a school where there's where everyone's been taught to be that we don't bully, there's zero tolerance, everyone's friendly, and that's great, right um that removes some negative things um, but if you don't matter like if you don't if you don't go home feeling like you actually matter to people, um then you still have that sense of loneliness. This is an isolation this is why you can have you know research that shows. People, and people are confused by this, but you can actually have people that suffer from loneliness that have a, a pretty elaborate social network. Um, and part of it might be a brain chemistry thing, but part of it appears to be um, just having a bunch of people that are nice to you and that like you isn't the same as having people that depend on you. Mm. Um, so I, that feeling that you actually play a role, um, that, that you matter, that you're making a contribution, that um that seems to be really, really important. It's so interesting because I sometimes wonder
1: week in and week out. Um I, I come to church and I sometimes go, Why why are these people here? <laughs> 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 I mean that in the best way possible. Like what's going on here that people are giving their time? There was there was a time a few weeks ago where, you know, people were passing the plate and I go, This is really strange. People are voluntarily a giving of their material, their material wealth for a cause that they think is beyond themselves. Like, what is going on here? And it's interesting that you say that there's this deep psychological connection between our innate sense that we're experiencing a meaningful life and its connection to. If I were to maybe paraphrase you slightly, it's it's connected to to our ability to make. Um, be a blessing to the world around us to contribute in meaningful ways to the lives of other people. And I just think about how, you know, week in and week out, people in churches, and this isn't just exclusive to Christianity, but obviously Christianity would be the thing I, I'm most familiar with. I, that week in and week out, there are people gathered all over the world that are hearing. story that in its best forms, and I know there's some some really bad churches out there too, but in its best forms are hearing this story of, you know, you're blessed, you're given to give to others in the world, whether it was in the case of Abraham, he was called to be a blessing to the nations, and then Israel's vocational call in the Old Testament was supposed to be like a a royal priesthood and to bless the world around them, and when they didn't do that— when they when they cease to do that, these acts of judgment happen, and then, of course, the ultimate Christian message is that's embodied in the life of of Christ, who died for the sake of the world, and, and those that follow this Jesus way are are to give of themselves for the sake of others, and it is immensely meaningful. Uh, I, I do feel, you feel this deep sense of it. And it's interesting to see that there is this sort of basic psychological need to actually serve, to be responsible for people around you things that perhaps maybe if you had all of your material needs met, you were healthy, all of the basic, let's say all of your basic Darwinian needs were met, right? You're surviving, you are successful at sexually reproducing. Could be all of those things, and you could yet still feel this deep, sense of dissatisfaction with life uh, what sorts of effects happen to people who can't find meaning is there like a is there simply like a shutoff switch a psychological shutoff switch that that could effect, effectively just mute these psychological demands for meaning
0: yeah I don't think so but I do but there is it's not a switch but there are indivi- what we call individual differences like you would think of a personality trait in people's Orientation towards meaning, and I think this has actual actually has interesting implications for vocational choices and and how people spend their time. So some people are really really high in what we call the need for meaning. Um, so they think about meaning a lot, like meaning's um, something that is a priority to them. And it does appear to be people that are low on this um, low on this um, continuum who it's not that they have an absence of the need for me. It's just that it's not as central. to the, They don't think about it that much. And so another way to think about it is like any other personality trait, just like you would say everyone kind of has some basic social needs, but there are people that are very, very social, right? right. It, and very extroverted, very interested in, you know, picking jobs, hobbies, activities that allow them to be around people. And then there are people that just, you know, aren't that way right it's not that they don't want relationships they're just happy or happy to have a quieter life in fact they can be overstimulated um with too much um with with, with too much social life right and so we kind of learn this about figure this about our out about ourselves and that you know orients us towards different things need for meaning seems to be kind of like that Um, so my, if, you know, I haven't actually done this particular study, but I would be interested. My guess is people who go into um, the clergy or who go into um, really any profession that's about serving the community um, are probably high in the need for meaning because need for meaning is a we do find is a strong predictor of you know what we call um, community focus, like intrinsic. Goals, um, and and need for meaning is seems is a reliable predictor of, of religious belief, um, and so it does seem to be. Um, but again, that's not to say that there's people that um, that people don't need any meaning. There might no. be like some real. There might be some people that have um, really really low meaning concerns that just don't think about it at all, and that's where it gets into what you were mentioning earlier about a tougher question outside of psychology, because you might say, well, is that true? Do they really, just because they don't consciously think about meaning, you know, they might be like interwoven into a really nice meaning network that they don't, you know, that they, so you can imagine like a, you know, I have a friend who's an engineer and he has a very, um, like what we call systemizing type of brain where he just doesn't really, he's not emotional really. And he doesn't really think um, things are just, he thinks like everything's like a system. Like he thinks about everything very, very engineering like, and just very kind of matter of fact about things. And, um, you know, he's always just kind of like, I don't, I don't really understand this meaning stuff or why people are into it. And, but then at the same time, you know, he has a wife and kids and he's very invested in them. And um, he's even, he even thinks of himself as a Christian. Um, and he has a very engineering like approach to that. I asked him about that and he said, well, he goes, if you think about it, um, things are models. Like you need models for everything. Right. And so, um, Religion, you know, Christianity seems like a pretty. It might not be perfect. It might not be the most accurate representation of reality. But not, no human, because things are mediated through our psychological yeah. systems. No human has a hundred percent accurate model of anything, anyway. And Christianity seems to be a very, very good model. Very, <laughs> very, very, very close. Yeah. Uh, so just the, like, but just the way he talks about it is very. Um, That's awesome. You know, t- it's take you know completely removes any kind of romantic like artistic sort of notion of it it's just very practical it's a good model for life just it's a (laughs) it's like a ham it's a blue the the bible's a pretty good um like instruction manual yeah Um, yeah so just stuff like that but so you could say well he might not be consciously concerned about he's not he's not going to come on this podcast with us and talk about these things he'd probably think that's a waste of his time um but that's but would you say he doesn't have meaning Oh, certainly internet, not. Right. right? Um, so I'm actually thankful
1: sense. because it seems like those people actually get stuff done in the world, <laughs> you know.
0: Right. And they make important, you know, that. Yeah, they make important contributions. So um, so I do think there is um, it's not an off switch. I do. I do think people dip, differ. And another way to think about that is it's good, because like what you just said, I think is true is. I, I think one of the challenges, and it took me a long time to kind of grapple with this myself, because I'm a product of, you know, I think 1980s sort of individualistic American <laughs> culture, and, and the and the, the kind of Christian tradition in that time, the you know the kind of Southwest Baptist tradition of that time, is that Christianity is very much an indiv- It's not an individualistic endeavor, but it's an individual choice. Right, right. That it's a you have to decide, um, you know, to to welcome Jesus into your heart. Right. Right. And um, and I'm not saying anything against that, but it kind of took me a while to sort of step outside of that and think about. Well, there's, people might have different roles because they're given, you know, they're blessed with different, you know, attributes or skills. You know how you might want to put or orientations. and there might be people that just don't really that's not going to be their thing. They're not going to be the people thinking about these big questions. Mm. Um and does that that doesn't mean that they're necessarily any less um any any less um oriented towards being a good, you know, not even just a Christian but a good anything, right? Um but they just have different um they just have different attributes. They're the ones building the bridges and you know, right. um, so to right. speak, um, doing the technical work. Um, so as someone who's done some like personality kind of research, I do actually find that that kind of interesting in relation to our individualistic culture, because now we live in a society where it's so focused on individual choice. Um, I think this is in part responsible for the dramatic decline of uh, of religion in the West. As we're so focused on individual choice, people could just say, oh, well, this isn't for you. Like, this is what we believe. This is our church. This is our doctrine. And you can be like, oh, well, I don't really, that's not really how I think about it. And there's no moral duty to participate, right? You could just right. be like, well, I guess this isn't for me. I'll go do something else. Um, but when church was the only game in town, so to speak, um, you could imagine that there was a wide distribution of characteristics represented in it, and there were people probably, you know, very skeptical scientists or other people that were like, well, you know, I don't know about this stuff, but um, this is my, this is, you know, this is my, these are my people, this is my group, this is my tradition. Um, I can make a contribution in what I'm good at. You know, I'm not good at these other things. But it seems like now we've really gotten more into participation, you know, you know making some kind of distinction between like you started out with at the beginning like an almost an antagonistic distinction right like right. you're either for science or you're for religion right, right? right. you you pick a team um mm. and that seem, that's a, i think that might be a very individual like individualistic cultural phenomenon if you look at other countries like in asia and africa um Science and religion aren't don't seem to be you know the antagonistic. In fact, a lot of the more successful people um, in in Asia tend to be you know in places like China tend to be Christian, um, and to them they see the two as this as part of a holistic I think approach to to life. You have these kind of like spiritual aspects of of life that um, you can submit to um, to be part of a community. Um, and then you have these other things. And so I do think there is something paradoxically <laughs> paradoxical about the Western individualistic approach to, um, to religion and that we might be, um, sort of deconstructing <laughs> religion without we blame, like people blame it on, oh, it's atheist or it's this or it's right, secular right. culture. Um, and you know, you know, that might be true too, but, um, there does seem to be something about this. Like, well, everyone has to make this individual commitment Mm -hmm. um, to something we all have to have the exact same way of thinking about this, perhaps. Um, As opposed to, we all have to submit to this together. We have a moral duty together, which is a more collectivist thinking and a less individualistic thinking, And your individual thoughts on it don't really matter that much. Like, so some, you know, like an intellectual humility. Like, you might disagree with this, um, but if you agree with, uh, but if you support the broader venture, um, then you're on the team, and you have, you know, you bring certain things to the team. Perhaps Um, I don't know if that any of that makes sense. I think I think Catholicism maybe does that better, or um, maybe certain like you know the, the high church kind of like mentality does that better than the evangelical tradition maybe. Um, which is interesting because if I and you would know this more than me, perhaps, but I think the evangelical tradition is the one that's actually growing, and it's the more traditional you know, Catholic churches that are in,
1: yeah, way. you know, actually the Catholic Church has remained so it was Pew research that first started studying this in seventy three Catholicism has hovered between. I, I want to, you know, someone else can look this up for to make sure I'm getting these numbers identical, uh, exactly correct. But it's hovered around 22 to 25 percent, mm-hmm. Um, and there's there's been some peaks and valleys, but it's remained in there. Mainline Protestant traditions, some of those high church pr- traditions, have been in steep decline, yeah. and then in like uh from like the mid 70s through about the 90s, evangelicalism was in a incredible roller coaster, you know, yeah. peaking. And it's probably—I mean—one of the, the one of the theories is that you know lots of the, the people that were leaving those sort of mainline traditions were just mm-hmm. moving into evangelicalism. But now we're actually seeing evangelicalism in decline, mm-hmm. and for the first time in U.S. history, there are more people that identify as not religious, or some people just call the nuns, yeah. than there are yeah. Catholics or evangelicals. And I've been exploring this uh, recently in my podcast and some of the videos I've been doing and exploring how throughout human history it appears that every every civilization in every age has had these essential meaning-making questions these mm-hmm. they've searched for this cohesive meta-narrative about reality that yeah. could answer these sorts of deeper questions and provide them with a sense of purpose ethical instruction and a a navigation system for their place in reality now th- these were traditionally called religions you know yeah. these. We had these great religious systems that provided this uh, meta narrative about reality, ethical instruction, et cetera, et cetera. But these traditional religions, like Christianity, are in decline in the U.S. And again, we have more people now than at any point in U.S. history who identify as having no religious adherence. So when people leave these traditional religious frameworks. Um, where do they go to have their yeah. sense of ultimate sense of meaning and purpose fulfilled are there could we say that there's almost like alternative secular religious experiences because yeah. it seems like people that psychological deep biological need doesn't just go away okay. um so where do they find fulfillment or looking for fulfillment if they're leaving these traditional religions
0: yeah, so that's actually a big area of my research and I had a, a a a grant to study I spent several years studying this and it resulted in my latest book um Supernatural um which is very much about all these all these issues and you're right people don't the need doesn't go away it gets channeled into other ventures some of them are also supernatural um but there are things like belief in ghosts and astrology, um, all those beliefs at the same time that the religion's in decline, as you noted, um, all these other beliefs in the paranormal and in non-traditional supernatural beliefs are all on the rise. So the argument that I've seen some secular um, advocates and some new atheists make that um, people, if you get just... Get people away from religion; they'll just become these like totally secular, rational, empirical creatures. Um, it has, as far as I can tell, has virtually zero evidence in support of it. That's the the irony of those arguments: is they're you know they're not rational, no. <laughs> and they're not empirical, um, and they're for for two reasons. Um, one, the human brain hasn't changed, as you noted. Um, so. It's not like in the last 100 years or 50 years or 200 years, um, all of a sudden we're different organisms. Um, so their view that people are kind of born atheists and if you, religion's just bad cultural programming, um, just isn't you know just isn't supported um, by neuroscience, by evolutionary um, science, by um, developmental psychology. Um, it, it and you've done some
1: you've done some specific experiments on this yeah. to demonstrate this, right?
0: Yeah, so it's yeah I have. So we've got you know a number of studies showing that if people are not religious, if people you know, if people are, identify as atheists, um, need their need for meaning for them it doesn't predict um, religion. It predicts belief in the paranormal. It predicts these other things. And there's also good reason to believe it's not just these kinds of things um, like astrology and healing crystals and and Wicca and all, the, all those things are up i mean the the number of people the the Wicca population or the, you know the, the witchcraft population is dramatically increasing, particularly in the most secular parts of the United States, um, as is interest in UFOs and and, and and all these things, but it's not just that there seems to be reason to suspect that people are also turning politics. Into kind of a religious-like movement, um, I think a lot of you know the the progressive you know kind of what some people call the, the woke yeah. culture, um, particularly among um, affluent whites, um, seems to be religious-like. And the reason I, I say that is because I'm, I don't want to conflate it with the more practical, um, you know, kind of urban social justice sort of concerns that. You know, a lot of which seem to be grounded in you know, you know, regardless of people's political op- opinions and solutions, a lot of it seems to be grounded in real concerns um, about um, about issues, injustices, and, and prejudice. Right, um, but there is an elite form of it that is interestingly largely white um, people with who come from more prosperous economic backgrounds. Um, um, who are secular Um, and so they've turned it into a kind of a religious like um movement that often um ironically doesn't really have a lot of focus on helping (laughs) the poor and vulnerable it has more to do with policing um speech and policing thought you know kind of you know or signaling virtues signaling virtues and so I think that, you know, I'm not trying to pick on those people so much, but I do think a lot of that is that they're like trying to figure out how do they ha- how do they matter like and how do they mm-hmm. how do they have any skin in the game in the culture wars and how do they make a, you know, how do they people want to feel like they're in some sort of epic struggle for for goodness, um, for moral virtue. And so if you take away the kind of traditional religious beliefs, um, people aren't just going to opt out of the endeavor they're going to try to find it whether it's you know whether it's in politics or whether it's in you know these kind of more mysterious like non-traditional paranormal supernatural stuff but the interesting thing about that though i don't have a lot of evidence with the political stuff the interesting thing about the paranormal stuff which i you know i did a bunch of research on for this for this for this book is it doesn't seem to work <laughs> Um, Hmm. So it appears to be driven by a need for meaning, um, but it doesn't doesn't actually seem to provide people with one. So that's what our data suggests. Um, How how do you evaluate that? So we actually look at, um, so we have, um, we have questionnaires that distinguish um, how much you're concerned about meaning and looking for meaning from how much you actually feel like you have meaning. And so we can do surveys where we measure those things, we measure people's different types of beliefs, and then we can create like statistical models um, to see what predicts what. And so it is the case that people who are higher in the need for meaning are more likely to be religious if they're theists, and people who are higher in the need for meaning are more likely to believe in the paranormal if they're atheists. Um, but then if you look at the other side, it side of it and say, okay, does believing in the paranormal, is that actually correlated with having a sense of meaning? And it isn't. In fact, it's often inversely correlated. So it's often the case that people, the more people believe in the paranormal, the less meaning they have. Um, so it seems like it's driven by the same need, um, the same existential need, um, but it doesn't seem to do a good job of fulfilling it. Just like you might say, um, if you're hungry... You could eat something healthy. Um, You you could eat a salad, um, or you could eat a candy bar, and both of them are driven by the need, you know, your basic caloric needs. And they both might kind of serve some. They both might kind of make like help you like feel like you're getting something. But but one you know one's empty calories. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe that's not the greatest. No,
1: that's helpful. That's um, helpful.
0: But one doesn't seem to be a sustainable um, source of nutrition one
1: doesn't also seem to provide any sort of cohesive meta narrative yeah. you know in, so if you do this sort of a la carte spirituality or diy diy spirituality where um, you know the philosopher charles taylor uh, in a work that i've frequently referred to uh, a secular age identified that humans throughout time seem to have this need to see meaning in the imminent in the imminent world, but also they have this innate sense for transcendence, for yeah. things that uh, a sense of meaning that goes beyond the the imminent frame is what he called yeah. it. And it's interesting because I I see uh, you know over the the course of let's say the, since the Enlightenment, um, you know I've identified and adapted these six essential meaning making questions people need answers for to give them this sort of cohesive narrative that informs their life and gives them a sense of purpose questions like what is ultimate reality you know so what's yeah. the foundational layer of reality what's the necessary thing by which all contingency drives their being what's the nature of reality is it just a material world is it material and somehow spiritual is it uh, you know material and we have a sort of consciousness that participates in some sort of higher consciousness that isn't reducible What's uh, what does it mean to be human? What happens to someone when they die? Um, w- is there right and wrong? And what's the sixth one? Oh, I'm drawing a blank. Anyways, I find it interesting that I think it, it seems to me that the predominant meta-narrative in our new sort of secular Western world is this naturalist, philosophical naturalism, philosophical materialism, and you're probably well, well aware of that, especially when you get into academic disciplines, To be secular, the neutral standpoint means to assume this sort of philosophical framework. But I think the thing that, from my standpoint, and again, I'm not approaching this necessarily from the same discipline, but again, like we talked about earlier, it seems like they're all interrelated. The problem appears that the answers that this framework provides people tells them things that for example, like, ultimate reality is simply the physical universe and nothing more. Mm-hmm. The nature of that reality is chaotic and random. Yeah. H- humans are nothing more than, you know, privileged apes that yeah. have randomly got here. When you die, that's all there is for you. Uh, yeah. Human history isn't going anywhere. And there is no ultimate right or wrong ethic, ethical system for reality. And so that seems to be the answers they're getting, which, um, you know, even the 20th century existentialist guys like Camus, for example, yeah. were wrestling with, well, how, how do we have this? The logical consequence of this framework seems to be nihilism.
0: Yeah.
1: But we... We can't be nihilistic, can we? I mean, we yeah. Yeah. there's no off switch f- to just shut it off and go, well, and people try. They try through yeah. various ways. I think what I found so interesting about – I read that spe- – one of those specific papers um, – that you had written about the link between those who were not religious, but you had, um, I like the the term, I want to make sure I get this term right, experimentally manipulated them to think about deep questions of meaning. I I like that phrase. That uh, you uh, were um, experimentally manipulating them to get them to think about things like death the seeming insignificance of humanity within the expanse of the cosmos. And what you did when you got people thinking about that stuff was you demonstrated that it increased their openness to the possibility of what you and your co-authors labeled the supernatural, the magical, or the extraterrestrial, yeah. which I might just say it, it opened them up to transcendence.
0: Yeah,
1: I- I'm curious about this research because it made me think of... Uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, who's mm-hmm. considered the, the father of existentialism, and he argued that to be an authentic self, that you had to have the synthesis of the finite and the infinite, and in order to have that, we had to come face-to-face with despair. We had to come face-to-face with the absurdity of finitude, of, yeah. and even face the—for him, as a theist, he, he acknowledged we had to come face-to-face with the ambiguity of the existence of God as we look at the imminent world. It would, appear, it would appear from your research that in, in some paradoxical way, that, that coming face to face with feeling like the imminent world doesn't provide satisfactory meaning, that that alone doesn't answer people's deepest longings for meaning, seems to be some sort of gateway into exploring transcendent sources of meaning. Um, is feeling a sense of meaninglessness a necessary precondition in order to explore transcendent sources of meaning? So when you propose to people to get them thinking about things like their own death and their insignificance and the size of the cosmos, it seems like you were presenting people in a way with this sort of like, here's Kierkegaard's definition of despair, and we're going to shove it right in your face and get you to despair. And then it seemed like it actually produced in people an openness or longing for transcendence.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And you know, I don't have I don't have a great answer because I think it I I I think it people are different so what I mean by that is there are traits one of them was what um and I've done a little bit of research on this what's called um personal need for structure um so some people just seem to really really um plug into systems of structure and they like everything in life to be very orderly and they're not particularly inquisitive or They don't do well with uncertainty, and um, but a lot of those people seem to have kind of a built-up kind of meaning system that um, insulates them from these things. So what I mean by that is when you provoke them with and and have them think about death or meaninglessness or the potential for meaninglessness, um, their defense system automatically comes online. Right? They're just like, no, I that doesn't. I do have meaning. Like I don't, you know. So it's not it's not provoking them. Um, it's just activating a pre-existing meaning system. Um, and so some of those folks seem to be kind of invulnerable to meaning threats because they have such a you know a well-established belief system that never gets you know that never gets challenged. Um, now you could. You could get into philosophical arguments about whether or not that's authentic, or you know, whether or not they they've really thought about it, or it's just uh, it, or it's just a form of dogmatism. I don't you know, I don't know the answer to that, but just empirically, um, those people seem to not um, you know, to not really become more explorative or open-minded when when they're thinking about meaning. They just, their system comes online. Their defense system comes online, boom. And they're like, no, that's, I, I, you know.
1: Is that they're, a self preservation survival
0: mechanism? Yeah, it's a, def, you know, it's what we call a psychological defense mechanism. And so, um, and so there's that. But then there are other people, um, which seems to be more illustrative of what you're talking about, that um, when they're pushed, pressed on these topics of, of meaning, um, then it does instigate a more, more of a quest or a search or an, an, you know, like a turning inward a more of a, a reflective and kind of ex, a, a explorative process. So, um, and again, I just think there's different types of, you know, there's different types of people. One of the things I, you know, I try to tell my students, I mean, I, I think this is a big problem in academia, actually, um, is we're biased to think that the way we think <laughs> is kind of the template for how people think, right? Right. Like we just think, well, if I can think of this, then other people think of it. Um, And so another way I say it to my students is we have a bias to populate the world with brains like our own. But people vary. Just like some people suck at sports (laughs) and are never going to be good at sports um, or don't have any interest in sports, um, there are people that just don't, you know... um, it's not that they don't have an orientation towards meaning. They just don't really um, want, maybe once the wrong word, but they're, they're not, it's not, they're, they don't go into these deep kinds of questions, even when you push them. So um, now I'm not saying they don't have crises of meaning because in real life people do have real crises of meaning. We're doing this silly thing in the laboratory where we're having people read philosophical essays um as a way to get the people who normally don't cling to these structures to start being willing to, you know, maybe to explore them. Um, and so we can definitely do that. But people do have real crises in media life. They, you know, they have tragic yeah. things happen. And, That's
1: not the same thing as enduring a real tragedy, yeah, a loss exactly. of a spouse or something yeah. like that.
0: So our, you know, I always have to keep in mind that our manipulations are very intellectual, for lack of a better word. Like they're philosophical. Um, and so what that seems to really do is it seems to capture the people who, who say they're not interested in, in religion or transcendent ideas or these things. Um, and they say, no, I'm a rationalist. I'm an imperial, you know, empiricist, no, you know, these things are, I don't really think about these kind of magical sorts of things. But if you get those people to think deeply about questions of meaning and death, um, it does sort of um, crack the door a little bit into pushing them more towards experiential openness, and I use the word experiential because there's a cognitive and even neuroscientific um, framework for this when we're grappling with questions about meaning um, we tend to privilege the more intuitive side of our cognition so meaning um When we experience meaningful things like love, when we're out in nature and we experience awe, um, that's an intuition, right? Like it's not something we're necessarily thinking deeply about in a rational, cold, calculative way, right? It's like a different app in our brain, right? Yeah, almost experiencing it. Well, it's a different. It's a different set. It appears to be a different um, set of neuro structures. Um. That come online when we're thinking about uh, when we're experiencing emotions and we're and we're thinking about others too. So there's a social cognition component to it. When we experience things like love and and care and, and concern for others, that's different than when we're trying to solve a logic problem. and right. it, it seems to implicate different brain processes. Um, and the things might even be antagonistic. So when we're thinking really, really logical about something, it's really hard to be compassionate. Um, when we're feeling compassionate or love um, or you know, something more um, emotional, it's really hard to be totally logical. Those two things seem to be um, antagonistic. So a lot of, But there's a lot of things in life where I, I use parenting as an example, where we kind of have to do both, right? Part of parenting is loving kids and being supportive and feeling, right? A feeling towards them. Um, but part of it too, is we know that sometimes we have to make really hard decisions, um, to teach them a lesson or to give them an opportunity to fail or something that's going to be good for them that goes against our intuition to rescue them. Right. (laughs) Right. Um, but we know that's a good learning experience. So there's a rational part of us that's saying, well, to be a good parent, we need to facilitate these sorts of experiences, learning, you know, opportunities. And that's rational parenting, um, but no one would say you should just totally be a, a cold, rational parent, right Like right, people would right. say you need both, right um, And so I think that's um, I think that's you know that's part of it. So anyway, we' getting back to your question, when you when you pro, when you push people towards these existential deliberations, um, it seems to pr- it seems to privilege the more intuitive side of their cognition. And so they'll get a little bit more into the, you know, I'm not saying they're going so far as to take a full leap of faith, but they're a little bit more open-minded to experiences that transcend the um, purely empirical and purely rational, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it does. So they might be more open to, say, um, experiencing meaning that is super- Cognitive in, like, a piece of beautiful music or something, mm-hmm. yeah. it engages those sorts of systems. Is that a is that it used to be, um, and I maybe there's better research now. Is that still sort of a, a right hemisphere, left hemisphere brain issue? Where, um, you know, it used to be, and I don't know if this is still the case, that a lot of the 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 ways by which we would process beauty or um, engage with art was very much a right hemisphere of the brain that that that's what it used to be I remember as a kid yeah. hearing that growing up is that is that still the case or is there I know that's not it's not one half or the other I know both yeah. are yeah. engaged in something but um, is that still the case now or is no. there
0: there are there are like People, there are things that people think about as being lateralized um, but um, and I you know it's it's not my um, it's definitely not my area of expertise but a lot of times when we think about I, I think think people think about it a little bit more spe- specifically now about particular neuromechanisms mechanisms and networks that are, gotcha. that are involved that might that might have in certain circumstances have some of these hemispherical lateralized um kinds of effects, but I, I, it, it's um, I'd say gets it's more complex than that yeah. um, if that makes sense. Um, and similarly, like the the mapping on of that of the cognitive um, piece of it gets um, gets more complex because a lot of the things that we do, even if you think about these things as being kind of antagonistic, um, a lot of the things that we do, if you take a step up, or a little bit more meta, right there. Definitely. Um, so, so it's not like, and I. This is where I, you know I think religion's a good example. Like religion, at its best, um, to me, seems to understand both these things. So a lot of the thing, like we were talking about at the beginning, a lot of the things, the practical advice of my parents um, about um, being a good Christian was very much focused on kind of rational things like if you want to have good outcomes in life um if you follow these kind of um moral standards um you're less likely to have problems right Um, like the
1: biblical book of proverbs for example is very much that sort of rational you do this and this will happen
0: right so there seems to be a lot about religion that that's like that that's like if you do these things and you and you and you follow these traditions and these rituals and you adopt these um moral standards as much as you know of course we all make mistakes and you know we all um fall but um if you try to live by these standards this is good and that actually will also contribute to a fulfilling kind of meaningful life because it'll just create less hardship for you right right um in terms of um interpersonal problems, you know, you're less likely to get divorced, it turns out, if you don't cheat on your wife.
1: <laughs> wow, shocker. <laughs> <laughs>
0: right? I mean, you're less likely, um, you know, to become an alcoholic if you don't um, drink all the time. Um, so it seems like that these things, you know, seem kind of obvious in a way, but those things seem very rational. But um, but a lot of what people like about spirituality is is not just a good, you know, guide for making choices in life. Um but it's also the experience, right? The experiential, Correct. yeah, definitely. Um, and that that feeling of like um, that feeling of uh, of connection and you know some kind of you know you know, um, you know music is a big part of uh, of religion for that. Like these these things that can can elevate you, where you um, where you feel um, where you have almost like this elation or spiritual transcendence, where you feel like like a oneness or you're part of something. Bigger, and it's not you're not setting there, uh, you know, rationally evaluating no. the experience. In fact, that would shut the system down. So if you think about these things antagonistically, that's another way to think about it. If you bring online the the, the rational part, that's going to shut down the joy, <laughs> right? That's going to shut down the experience. Um, and you don't have to think about this necessarily in a religious context. You can do this in anything. Like if you go watch a movie, or um, or go to a concert, and you just let the music move through you, or you just throw yourself into it and are absorbed in the in the in the film. Um, it's a different experience than if you were sitting there with a notepad as like a critic, right? Um, right. Saying I'm gonna take, am I'm gonna, I'm gonna like think about this really critically. Um, and so there are things in life that we just seem to that seem to be good for us, um, because we're willing to um, just experience them right mm-hmm. so i, I think, think you need i think you need both in a in in a system right you need you need something and this is where i think what you were pointing out earlier maybe these para, maybe these things don't do a good job of providing meaning these like kind of paranormal stuff um it might be for a number of reasons but i think one is it's all focused it's largely all focused on the experiential kind of stuff um or i'm really like just want to I, I, it just seems it just seems interesting that there might be another dimension, and there might be paranormal spirits, or it all seems focused on that. And none of the well, here's actually how to like live a good life and be part of a community, and you mm-hmm. know have duties to others. There doesn't seem to be a moral landscape um, that dry, that shepherds people towards each other. And to,
1: it doesn't um, give them a way of being in the world. It might yeah. give them a sense uh, a sense that there is more. Than the yeah. imminent in front of them, which it seems like we have this innate desire for, yeah. and there's yeah. various—right. Now, we, if we acknowledge that that thing exists, which is one of the things I think is so interesting about your your research, is that it's demonstrable that that exists. Not, not necessarily that there is a transcendent thing, but the desire for an experience of the transcendent seems to be a universal, though there's varied amounts of strength that— um, yeah. People experience that more strongly than other people. Naming what it is is a different thing, and that's where we get into philosophy and theology, and that's where it's interesting, you know, so much of—and I don't like being polemic on on this at all, but— this sort of new atheist movement, which has been quick to just go, well, there is no transcendent. And we have this all explained through math and science. It's like, well, you can't do math while you're listening to music, even though much of music is mathematical. There's there's notes and there's waves and uh, certain frequencies that these waves oscillate at, which create these feelings. But that's not the same thing as, like, sitting and just uh, taking in a beautiful piece of music. Yeah. if you have time, Clay, I'd like to just ask one more question because uh, I found this part of your research so interesting too. There, there seems to be this um, this recent—you've addressed it a little bit already. This recent ideological movement that that's focused on the deconstruction of tradition, the deconstruction of inherited wisdom, and and even. seems to be challenging the fundamental notions of what it means to be, for example, like a human male or a human female. And I've been really fascinated in your work on nostalgia or the recollection of the past. And and I do have to admit, of course, admit my own bias on this, as someone who did his undergrad in history and graduate work in this niche intersection of philosophy, theology, and culture, and who helps people vocationally as a pastor explore these like ancient practices of spirituality every week and read this ancient book. I'm a bit biased, but I I do find it uh, interesting that there seems to be immense value in learning from the past— Uh, that seems to be my experience. And then we have this sort of radical deconstructive force in our culture that's going, no, we need to destroy that. And I was actually listening to somebody, I mean, I was listening actually to the Joe Rogan podcast and he was interviewing this guy that does AI research and has been over in China. And one of the things that the Chinese government did in the the revolution was they went and they destroyed so much of their history and only bits and pieces of it were preserved and actually taken to Taiwan. Um, because they wanted to write an you know a new future for themselves and it's interesting that it seems like in the areas of like artificial intelligence and um, you know genetic experimentation, they don't seem to have the same values as the Western yeah. world. anyways, that's a, a long tangent to say I, I'd really be interested in you sharing a little bit uh, on your work on nostalgia and the the psychological benefits of intentional reflection on the past.
0: Yeah so that. I got into that area of uh, of research, which you know, on the surface might sound a little random, like nostalgia. What's that got to do with this stuff? Um, but you 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 did a good job of of hinting at its importance because um, when I first got into it, the basic idea was part of the uniqueness of our existential condition is that we can think about time and that we can think about the future, which um, of course makes us able to think about a future without us in it. <laughs> So, you know, think about our mortality. And so that's why I kind of got into thinking about nostalgia is because the the next question was, well, people think about the future and have anxieties that are related to the future of loss and death and and, and things like that. um, Well, they can also reflect on the past and what are the implications of that? And, you know, one of the things we found in our very early research on this, this was when I was in graduate school even, was that people tend to use the past as a way to help and grapple with concerns about the future. So I look towards a future of uncertainty, of, you know, declining, inevitable declining health, and eventually you start to lose loved ones, and, you know, and, and then you you too will die. Um, what do I do? Well one thing you can do is you can kind of stabilize, you can use the past to help stabilize yourself. You can, you can bring to mind your most meaningful or most cherished memories and that help remind you that you've had a life of, of, of meaning and that there are people that love you and you've, it's been a, you know, it's been a good adventure. In fact, one of the things that you often see in literature about elderly people is what's called life review, which is, you know, as people get closer to, you know closer to death as they get older they do kind of do this life review of thinking about have i had a good life did i what would i've done differently um and this is where you hear things which are true which is you never hear anyone say i wish i would have worked more (laughs) or Mm -hmm. you know people say i wish i would have spent more time with family um and so that's part of that life review process but in our research we found that when people are thinking about the future and the future mortality um Thinking about the past helps stabilize them. It helps make them feel rooted in something that's that's bigger and less um, transient um, than their own individual lives. And so that's how we got started. And then then we just started really. Then I started really getting part of uh, actually lived and moved to the UK after graduate school and worked at a research center there for a couple of years, which we were dedicated pretty much 100% to studying nostalgia from every angle of you know, what causes it, how it's experienced, is it universal or not? Um, You know, what does it do for people? Um, What are their personality differences? So, you know, we were looking at all these questions. There's the whole project on nostalgia. Um, But one of the things I found in my research with my interest on meaning is nostalgia is one of the things that helps people feel rooted in their family, their traditions, their culture, Um, and that rooting... that. um, gives us a sense of what we often refer to as continuity like um i have i'm part of something that continues throughout um throughout space and time it's not just me here by myself and and that's a big part of um that's a big part of religion too it isn't just these um like supernatural transcendent kind of concerns of course it's also this this is where i come from like these are my people and i'm going to be i'm part of this tradition that I hope to pass on to my children and their children, and that will, you know, that will that will persist into the future. Um, and so that's really how I got into, you know, started studying nostalgia, and it does seem to be um, an important way for which people kind of do this life review and figure out what's meaningful. And that actually got me, you know, into some of our most recent work on nostalgia which is nostalgia doesn't just seem to be a past-focused activity because, you know, obviously it's about your past memories. um, But people seem to use it as a motivational guide, um, just kind of naturally, even perhaps without being aware of it. So um, if you're experiencing some uncertainty in life or, um, you know, don't really know what direction um, to go um, or experiencing loss or, you know, or stress, a lot of times people will naturally turn to nostalgia to kind of figure out who, you know, you know, who they are. Is that why we have so many like
1: movies and stuff getting rebooted? Is, I think so. Is, I mean, we're, I so. is that because we're in sort of a cultural meaning crisis and there's this, no. uh, it's not just simply like lazy writing, but there might <laughs> actually be a real deep psychological desire in our culture to stabilize ourselves
0: in the middle of this? I do, think that's, I do think that's part of it. I th- so I think it's two things. I think one is that, that when there's more social change and economic uncertainty and things like that, um, a culture becomes more nostalgic. And um, there's some evidence of this, not just in the U.S., which we can, you know, all the things you talked about, whether it's fashion or movies or um, um, reboots and things like television show reboots. But there's, you know, there's people that have looked at, like in in, in Europe, there's like a a rise of kind of a, a of a traditionalism and nostalgia for the past. Even weird things, like in Russia, some people have documented like a nostalgia for the Soviet Union. Um, yeah, I've people. heard of this. It's crazy yeah, so to it's me. Like a weird. And so, what the argument, from what I understand of that, is um, what the argument is. It's not neces. It is this kind of like, well, that. Um, there was more certainty and we kind of had a national identity and we knew who we were and things like that. And, you know, I don't know that much about that case. I've just read a little bit about it. Um, so, but I do think that's, that's part of it. When you have cultural upheaval or stress or uncertainty, we look to the past naturally. That just seems to happen. But another part of it, um, is seems to be, and this might help explain why trends come back around every couple decades is, what happens, it seems to be, is once people um, become get to the age where they are in control of culture, a popular culture. Um, so, movie directors are in their, you know, the people who are making Star Wars now are in their 40s and 50s, and they, they grew up with those things. So, people, it's, fashion kind of comes around every two or three decades, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so stuff that's from the 80s is coming back. Um, it seems to be that when people, when a generation sort of gets to the age of where they're in charge of shaping the popular culture, they look to their childhood for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's when a lot of these nostalgic memories um, started to form while they were be- figuring out their identity, like who they were, like when they were, their, their sense of self was emerging. So a lot of nostalgic memories are about youth and childhood. Of course, you can be nostalgic for things all over the lifespan. Um, But it seems like at that cultural level, this just sort of happens as um, people look back, well, what had an impact on me when I was young? And how do I... And I don't think it's happening in a conscious... I don't think anyone's saying, well, I feel nostalgic for my childhood.
1: No, it's deeply subconscious, right?
0: Right, but I think that's part of it. And I think it's in part because nostalgia is this force that helps keep us grounded in where we come from and our traditions this is why you can get weird things like you can have you can go to like a car show like a custom car you know like an old you know car and, and you can see young people really into classic muscle cars that existed way before they were born you know they they didn't drive those cars um well why or you can go to you can go to like um, concerts of you know see people that are or you can see people that are collecting vinyl records and of old music and it was not from their childhood so why are they into that well if you probe deep enough usually what you find is well their dad was into muscle cars or their parents listened to the Beatles when they were kids so it does seem to be in part like this longing not just for um, my own past but I have memories from my past. That were my parents' memories that they're passing on. So there does seem to be this kind of intergenerational effect. Of that's how we transmit cultures. Nostalgia is how we hold on to and safeguard culture. Is it? Um, it keeps us rooted. So, you know, getting to your deconstruction kind of point that you made. This is this is I think a concern. Is if if the effort is to, to doubt, and this is a very individualistic Western phenomenon to have little regard for your elders yes Um, even distrust i mean there's a there's a serious you never hear people talk about it but there's a very serious ageism among the like leftist um kind of crowd of don't trust anything Mm -hmm. traditional because what they're saying is um old people are just they're backwards and they don't know anything they're not sufficiently woke um as opposed to a more collective society that actually puts a lot of um, value into the elders because, you know, they seem to have accumulated a lot of cultural wisdom, right? Um, So there's that angle of it. But then there's also, so it's not just the ageism, there's just, like you said, there's this anti-traditionalism. While simultaneously a lot of these people are very, very... Nostalgic. They're the, the it's like on BuzzFeed and these kinds of places that you see all these like nostalgia for Pokemon or for Game Boys <laughs> yeah, or all right. these things. And it seems like a really, really superficial consumer culture of nostalgia, but that's where their youth was. Um you know, that's the things that that's the things we grew up. I mean, I have nostalgia for Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the things that we grew up with. And so they don't recognize that there are these psychological processes in them that are grasping for some kind of rooting in um, who they are and where they come from, um, while they're consciously saying "tear it all down," uh, we hate yeah. you. Yeah, um, I
1: I think yeah. it was so interesting to even see the reaction to the Notre Dame Cathedral fires because. Yeah, there were some there's some people that were like good riddance, you know, it was a symbol of colonialism and all the other stuff, the problems of the church. But by and large part, the outpouring of people going well, we've lost something incredibly valuable here. Mourning, and, and you go, why is that? I mean, I get that there's some people that had significant experiences being at that place physically with their kids, but I never, I never, I've never yeah. been to to France before. I've never, never seen it in person. I mean, I watched The Hunchback in Notre Dame as a kid, but uh, but I felt this deep sense of loss that we had lost something. Is that? I mean, is there something to be? Um, identified in that sort of, boy, what happened here was a significant loss and it it touches on something deeply subconscious?
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I think so. And of course it's also worth, you know, I'm not trying to over-glamorize nostalgia because one of the things we do have to guard against is kind of a false nostalgia or, you know, romanticizing the past and and as a result um, neglecting bad (laughs) aspects Mm -hmm. because you definitely see an exploitation of nostalgia that way where it's pretending that everything was better in the 1950s right Um, when i think you can i think an honest intellectual analysis you could look back and say well there are certain features of life in the past that maybe um had things we can learn from and that were better but there was also a bunch of stuff that we've improved upon that were you know i mean just basic things like civil rights right um so i think that that's i think it's always good to keep that in mind that but but that you can be seduced by a by a romanticized you know kind of false nostalgia um but but that people will say well yeah that you know nostalgia's bad but that that's that's a simplistic view no it seems like for the most part nostalgia is good and there's a lot of good features about it um you just have to be careful, you know, you have to drink it in moderation, so yeah. to speak. Um, you have to be careful about not getting, um, not getting pulled into, well, everything now is horrible and everything in the past was great. Because, of course, life's more complex than that. But, this, but the other view is, you know, is, is also bad, which you know, you're, you're noting is, is you don't have to say the past was wonderful, everything was perfect, but it's no better to say the past was, was horrible and right. We burn it all down.
1: That whatever is true is anything that heads in the opposite direction of the past.
0: Right. Yeah. So I think that that's a, and that's one of the arguments that some people have made to why progressivism, secular progressivism, is almost like a religion because it's a, it's a, it's a view that, that's, um, that has this directional arrow that where everything's just always getting better. Right. Like, right. Just,
1: it is theological.
0: Right. As opposed to a more you know view of well no humans have always you know that we you know we have the same brains there's goodness there's badness there's evil there's you know um, there's posit- there's great acts of generosity and kindness and there's acts of you know of exploitation and 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 um and horrible things and that's going to transcend time um, so it, this kind of progressive utopianism if we just get rid of all the thought crimes and, <laughs> right, right. All, the, all the old people and all the conservatives, and, you know, everyone who's holding us back, um, that seems to be a very, that's a fantasy. Um, um, so you don't have to be one or the other, right? You don't have to be a blind nostalgic or like a fantasy social utopian, like progressive. Um, but one thing that does seem to be the case in our individualistic culture is that people are definitely very nostalgic. Um, I mean, that's, we've documented that. But it, it, there is this weird strand of um, distrust for the past mm-hmm. as opposed to looking to the past as a legitimate source of, of, of guidance and, and wisdom. And, and part of it seems to be like a, almost a nar- part of the individualistic side is almost a, a cultural narcissism of having no deference for anyone like like that. They might have figured this stuff out, like right? That. They grappled with some of the same questions we you know it's
1: like well we've got iphones so everybody else before us was idiots
0: yeah right so um i think that's weird because when, when people say stuff like that i'm like oh do, do you know how to make an iphone <laughs> do you know something i don't you know, to know build the pyramids <laughs> right <laughs> you know, um, or... so um so there is a vanity that comes from and from ironically from inherit inheriting all of this technology inheriting all this right like um we didn't build it. We inherited it. But then having no deference for the people who laid the groundwork and who built it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm getting a little off topic with no. the nostalgia stuff, you know, because most of our nostalgia stuff is really just more on the psychology of it, not these broader cultural things. Um, but it does seem to be, nostalgia does seem to be an important part of how people interrogate their lives um, and or bring to mind experiences to know what it is that's really Given them um, a sense of meaning and continuity with the past.
1: I think about the theological interpretation of what you're talking about, and I, I think about the responsibility in the Christian tradition to hold on to what is good and true, the received wisdom from the past. But simultaneously, there's always been throughout, whether it's biblical theology, there's also been this emphasis on while we do this, there's always opportunity for reform. You know, you went from, if we were to go through like a kind of a biblical survey, you go from this sort of mosaic sacrificial system to when David becomes king. He's like, no, we're not doing that anymore. We're just going to sing in a temple, you know, in a tabernacle. And then Solomon builds a temple, and then Christ comes and says, you're not going to need the temple anymore. There seems to be this reforming element that, and also a, a burden of responsibility on those who are uh, in positions of influence, whether they were, for example, in the Old Testament, biblical kings or prophets, to to repent for actions that were detrimental to those, not, even those outside of their immediate religious community. You know that was one of the unique things, maybe not unique, but special things, even as one looks at the Torah you know, and a lot of people will look at the Jewish the Jewish Torah and go, boy, what's all the stuff with, you know, you can't trim your beard this way, and, yeah. you know, women on their menstrual cycle are unclean. And But then there's also these injunctions for how they were to care for the poor and to treat those who yeah. were dispossessed, or we, we might use today, marginalized. Yeah. And the burden of responsibility was on those in leadership and institutions to go, we got to hold to these things, but also we need to be able to reflect and go, no, we repent and we need to actually change these sorts of behaviors in the world. And so, I, you know, when I see a lot of people, especially in my age and in your age as well, get involved in sort of these woke movements, I, I can understand it because the institutions, many of the institutions, whether they're American government or the Catholic Church or people that grew up in evangelicals, institutions saw a lot of horrible things and abuses. And so um, I can understand it's too bad. I think I often wonder what would be different if those people in those institutions were regularly admitting when they'd made mistakes instead of being in this sort of fear of, we've got, we've got to defend team right versus team wrong. And it's like, you know, if you change your opinion on something, you're a flip flopper. It seems to be, we just have this unhealthy unhealthy dialogue our culture does not know how to dialogue together without getting into polemics and then then people just seem to isolate more into their tribalistic teams. so yeah I think that's right well clay i uh, thank you so much for the time I, I think this is a wonderful conversation i'm i'm so excited to share this share this with everybody could you tell a little bit of, um, about perhaps where people could go to perhaps purchase books of yours or find out more about your work
0: yeah, so I have a, a a website that's it's easy. It's just clayrutledge.com, and it's you know it's got a lot of information about my work. Um, my most recent book is called Supernatural Death, Meaning, and the Power of the Invisible World, and um, it's available on Amazon if people are interested. Um, and yeah, that's and I'm also on um, on on Twitter. That's the only social media I do, um, and I think it's just clay dot rutledge or
1: Clay I'll put all these links in okay. the uh, description yeah. of the episode too, as well. So, yeah. thank you, Clay. Appreciate you taking the time. Did you get all your uh, end of semester grading done? <laughs> your professor? Yeah.
0: yeah, we're all done. And awesome. So, um, so yeah.
1: Oh, great. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Clay. Well, friends, over the last month or so, there's really been some increased engagement with the discussions happening in this podcast and the videos I'm doing on YouTube as well. So if you're looking for ways to support this and to ensure that I can continue doing this and even expand what I'm doing now and improve it, uh, there's a few ways you can help out. One is by leaving a rating and a review on the podcast platform of your choice, especially you know, about 70, 75% of people are using Apple Podcasts. So that would certainly be a place even if you don't use that platform, where if you left a review or a comment, it would certainly help other people discover it. Uh, you can do that as well in the other podcast platforms, but especially on Apple Podcasts and uh, i also say Podbean as well. I'd also encourage you, if uh, you want to support this work, the, another way you can do that is by just sharing episodes with people that you know that you think of. Would be helpful to them, and then finally uh, by supporting on Patreon, becoming a patron supporter, looking to get to a goal of 300 patron supporters. We are not near that <laughs> yet, but I'm, I'm hoping I'm hoping to get there. Uh, and that sort of support can help continue this work I'm doing, bringing guests on, um, doing. Uh, videos and all sorts of other things so thank you for those patreon the supporters on patreon who are already making contributions already there's also those tier rewards sort of incentives and i'd like to get to the point where we are able to have some you know some patron only content that we'll be putting out so you can check out all that stuff all of those links are in the description to this podcast so again, I love having these conversations. Feel free to reach out to me on Twitter to leave me a message, uh, even in your your comment section on Podbean or on YouTube. And I, I do my best to try to respond to most of, those, most of those comments, most of those interactions. So until next time.